This podcast is hosted by Joseph McElhaney and myself, Mohammed Al-Bakri. Joseph, you want to introduce yourself? Uh, sure. So I'm in the Department of History at the University of Connecticut, uh, but my background's really in classical languages and literature. So I've done a little bit of translation, medieval monk's autobiography for Penguin, and, and some other stuff, but basically interested in it and, and happy to be here and having a conversation with Muhammad about uh, all sorts of translation issues. Uh, I'm an applied linguist by training. Translation, in one way or another, informs what I do. I have done some translation myself, and I'm very interested in translation studies, broadly speaking. And you did your well-regarded plays, uh, so that should get a shout-out. Thank you, Joseph. And a different kind of translation, the stuff that you did that's performative, whereas I did stuff that's literary, so it's nice. Uh, we're coming from a couple of different perspectives. We will complement each other in this respect. Our conception of this podcast is that it is a discussion of translation as it is steeped in the humanist tradition. We will discuss different aspects of translation, historical, linguistic, philosophical, sociocultural. And I'm mostly looking forward to some savage arguments in which I prevail, right? Really. <laughs> but anyways, where should we start? A brief overview of what this podcast is about. Our podcast, as we envision it, will delve into the issues and controversies of translation, especially literary translation. I have some strong feelings about that. I know you do. <laughs> in addition to our discussion about translation issues, say, why do we translate, translating classics, mistranslation, translating dialect, and so on. We also hope to feature conversations with scholars who are doing some interesting work in translation studies. But more importantly, we also hope to interview translators from a variety of different languages and traditions. Yeah, and, and different approaches, right? So we'll hopefully get a whole uh, range, a polyphony of translators' voices. And there's a lot of interesting stuff going on, particularly right now and in the past few years. It seems to have been a flowering right, mm -hmm. of translators and translations. So we have been considering this podcast idea for quite a while, but finally we decided it's time to take the plunge. And picking on the cue, you mentioned the flowering of translation. We thought maybe that should be a topic for our first discussion, the visibility of translation. As opposed to invisibility, which was seen as a, a problem, right? Maybe known to some people who in translation studies to Venuti's work on this where, and you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, right? but he really saw there, there was a problem with the invisibility of the translator, and he felt that even in the practice of translation, one, uh, there should be an element of foreignness in there to kind of signal the fact that you are dealing with, say, a different text, a kind of foreign text. But, you know, one of the things that, that bothered me about it, and I think Benuti would have maybe a good response to this, is the idea, like, why is the invisibility of the translator a problem? In some sense, this was seen as the ideal. Is it, is it kind of an injustice, right? Is it really, mm -hmm. is more this theoretical uh, problematization of the invisibility of the translator underline it is really kind of a question of ego. Uh, I don't know if it's fair to put it in those stark terms, but people want to say, look, I did all this work. I should have at least equal billing. Um, or like, you know, Penguin, I think famously or infamously, doesn't put translators' names certainly on the cover or the spine at all, right. as, as I know. And so wanting to foreground the translator. I think that's an important point. Translated texts do not magically appear like babies in cabbage patches. He has a different argument about the illusion of transparency and the right. linguistic practices that translators are expected to follow, but we might get into that later on. 
But the point is well taken. Translators do important work and they should get credit for it. Their work should be visible. But in any case, the title of this topic, the translation visibility, I think it is safe to say, and maybe this is open for argument, that translation now is more in the spotlight than ever before. That there is some sort of renaissance in translation studies in general, and of course in the visibility of translation and translators. Yeah, so you get, you know, one, the development of programs and centers, which have started. And also, you know, for example, the fact that, say, someone like Emily Wilson, who just translated the Odyssey, and quite a few, even Homeric translations the past few years, but her version, I guess, released uh, last fall, has been guided right. getting a lot of press. Not only, I think, for the quality of it, the, it is a different approach just in and of itself, but also the publisher, to highlight the fact it was the first... English translation of the Odyssey by a woman ever. There had been a, a French translation, prose translation done early age, mm-hmm. like 1709 or something mm-hmm. like that by Madame Dossier. Speaking um, of that, August, and we are recording here in mid-August, is Women in Translation Month. It's meant to honor women authors in translation uh, related to the flowering of translation, too, so there are organizations and associations that are very much concerned with translation. English Pen, for example, Alta, the American uh, Literary Translators Association, new publishing presses solely dedicated or very welcoming to works in translation, Open Letter, New Directions, New Vessel Press. There are excellent blogs uh, that are language-specific, Arabic, Chinese, German, Spanish, and so on. Yeah, there's plenty of online journals and places that publish translation, uh, Brooklyn Rail, Asymptote. So literary journals. Yeah, a lot of it, in fact, maybe most of it, really they seek contemporary work kind of from less translated languages, say Bulgarian poets who no one would have ever thought really about if they did translate them, wouldn't have had really an outlet for them. And so it's, it is kind of right. an interesting, it's also kind of in a flowering that way, not only higher visibility, but you see a greater reach into, you know, languages that really, um, just because of numbers, hadn't really been paid attention to. And so you get authors and traditions that are made much more visible. I think it's, it's worth pointing out there's, there's consequences to that. And one of the things that concerns me about that is it is the focus on ink translation into English. There is a way that this well-intentioned reach into other traditions and languages yeah. long-term may endanger those right and I, I think I may have even like raised this point as I like to do to stake out a, a radical position of banning translation if you want to read Bulgarian poet you learn Bulgarian I'm not sure I agree with this position but I'll convince you of it. <laughs> it, may, it may take 30 or 40 episodes you're point about translation being bi-directional, that it's not a one-way street, is very well taken, though. And we'll perhaps talk about that and talk about globalization of English and its impact on translation at some point. But I want us also to point out new prizes for translation. And I know this is kind of a controversial issue. In fact, uh, there was a, an article published last month in Asymptote, Maria Snyder, I think, she discusses yeah, the new prizes, their impact on translation. Best Translated Book Award, National Book Awards, New Translated Literature category. It's one of those things where it's it's good. Uh, it's great that there's some outlet for recognition and financial support, frankly. Which is badly needed. But I almost think there should be a lottery system. The National Book Award in translation, they should just choose one. Maybe random is, is a little too far. To, to start making judgments of different translations and languages, how are you picking one? It's really not a uh, competition 
between books, it's a competition between publishing houses yeah. and bigger publishing houses are the ones who have a stronger chance of submitting right. their books yeah. to, to maybe, these awards. Maybe so. just give the money to some smaller presses. To, to be hypocritical, someone who's translating out of the Bulgarian or something like that, right? And they're like, okay, here's, here's some money. You just go ahead and take it. Or, better yet, use that money to send the person to learn Bulgarian. <laughs> <laughs> Then I'm happy. It is a means of bringing uh, more visibility to the work of translators, though. So it's not perfect. It has its downside. But since we are focused on visibility in this uh, inaugural episode, that's one way of bringing more visibility yeah. by giving awards to some of the best translated books, however you define best. You just like giving to some translated books. Okay, <laughs> that's, that's fine. It's better than none. Also, uh, in terms of visibility, there are grants for literary translators, uh, like the National Endowment of the Arts, NEA. I see more and more book reviews in major newspapers, reviews of translated books yeah. that actually make a point of mentioning the name of the translator and uh, talking a little bit about what they did and discussing the language. I think that's a great salubrious development. Yeah, I just use Emily Wilson's Odyssey, which has uh, probably maybe gotten the most press and attention uh, for good reason. Interview piece. Uh, whether in the New York Times, she started explaining her approach to the first word, first description of Odysseus, like polytropos, which has given, given all sorts of nuances. And the interviewer made a point of saying, oh, okay, explain this to me as someone who doesn't know ancient Greek. Well, what does the word mean again? It really means like so polytrope, many term. And Emily Wilson goes with complicated, which is very different from the way it's traditionally approached in a, in a very interesting way, right? But anyway, the fact that the interview kind of went in the language and the translation and actually listed some all the traditional different ways that the word right that's kind of a nice uh, window mm-hmm. onto how a translator works and some of the difficulties because uh, here are all these other translations that existed before like 50 right it just right. in english that that emily wilson was kind of engaged in that tradition and it also sh- i think shows the importance of retranslating right that you don't say there's a definitive translation right. there. and she's not the only one who uh, has been interviewed by major media outlets more and more i see interviews with translators in, in the guardian or bbc treating translation as a legitimate form of authorship yeah. and i know you have an interest Interesting uh, reconceptualization. Yeah. Interesting date, right? What does that really mean? <laughs> it's polytropic, I'd say. Uh, but yeah, I almost wonder just the way that we've accepted this certain conceptualization of the relationship of translation and authorship. We've just kind of lived with it. And it has become, in some sense, a historical fact that has to be dealt with. But, you know, maybe in a more philosophical sense, we've got it backwards mm-hmm. or, or wrong in some serious way. And some of the the issues of translation, even like, say, oh, the kind of issue of visibility, invisibility of foreignizing or not, right, domestication. These these types of issues or the asymptotic relationship of original mm-hmm. to translation, mm-hmm. right, that those arise out of this misconception. And one of the things I would try and argue for, this notion of translator versus original author grew out of a this kind of a historical moment, this whole division between letter and spirit. Which is the subject of our yeah, new so discussion. Well. It's interesting that you mentioned translation studies. That's also within the scope of what we hope to cover in this episode. This is a new, fledgling, thriving, interdisciplinary field that is getting more and more attention. It's no longer on the margins of the humanities and social sciences as it used to be. Yeah. So it used to be translation studies as... Yes, it's a language issue. It's part of the broader applied linguistics, or more commonly, was 
subsumed under comparative literature. Now it's its own field. And I wonder if, you know, what you think about that, because part of me thinks, right, well, academia has its trends, and, and so is it really its own field? Because you have to almost know right. second language already. Right? No, so let me clarify here. It has come of age. Yeah. It's not necessarily tied to comparative literature. It is an interdisciplinary field. It's an interdisciplinary. It has to rely, of course, on linguistics or applied linguistics, uh, comparative literature still, sociological approaches, yeah. or psychological approaches to, to translation. Yeah. It's almost as if it comparative literature, right, which, again, you go back 100, 150 years, was it really was, something's taking literature in different languages and right. making often very philological comparisons thematic. It eventually grew into more of a home for literary theory. Right. And it's in a way almost translation studies is just what comparative literature has uh, morphed into. And I guess there's more theory about the act of translation itself. It usually is involving literary stuff. People at a university going to a translation studies field. I think they're not normally learning to do technical translation or talking about that. Or maybe they are. They are. And in fact But those uh, are kinda of, are those kind of separate programs from I guess it depends on the yeah. nature of the program. But computer science is part of translation studies now we're using corpora and language analysis. It's an interdiscipline, but it's a thriving one. I would say it seems that it has secured its position in the humanistic enterprise. Well, we'll see, we'll see if it lasts. But it may be interesting to see where it goes. Uh, I mean, that's maybe something like artificial intelligence, like transitional help, mm-hmm. much like Google Translate has mm-hmm. improved at least for basic stuff in the past five years. I remember reading something about a year or so ago making comparisons mm-hmm. of how much better uh, it's gotten. So as that evolves, and perhaps, you know, again, is the reach of English it spreads and spreads. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what that's going to do to the field of uh, translation. Right? It is definitely an evolving field, that's for sure. But there are certain things that seem to be perennial. Certain issues: binaries, faithfulness or fidelity and right. infidelity, the letter versus the spirit, which. I think will be the discussion of our next episode. Yeah, we can definitely so, get into that. I have, a, yeah, I have a lot to say about it. Uh, there'll be some fireworks, I'm sure. Maybe some fisticuffs if I can, uh, can provoke Muhammad enough. No, I think <laughs> it will be peaceful and fine. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. This is our. Yeah, well, that'll be. Uh, I think that'll be fun. So uh, we'll get into that. So thanks uh, everyone for for listening and. Be sure to visit us at uh, the website on translation.org. You can also find the podcast on iTunes as well as Spotify. Take care. See you next time.